0: The scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 17, 14 through 27. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. They were greatly distressed. And when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself."
1: Thank you, Susan. So when you came in this morning, no doubt you noticed a very large crane in the middle of our construction site. Uh, Lord willing, and if everything goes well this week, by the time you come back next week, you will see the exterior walls of the sanctuary emerge out of the uh, dirt that's there. And it's going to be an exciting uh, week and a half here from a construction standpoint. So thanks for your patience with um, the parking lot and uh, doing what you can. I just want to remind you that as we move into this fall season, there's a couple things we still need you to do. We still need you to come early. And now you come to the 940 service, that's great. If you can come to the 8 o'clock service and be more spiritual than everyone else, we'd love to have you come. So um, that, that's a great service. Uh, it, it's, it's alive. It's vibrant. Not anything different than this. Um, if you can do that, that'd be wonderful. If you can't, we understand. But if you can, that would be helpful. The other thing is sit close. We still have um, need for more space. We had 350 people in worship two last week. Uh, we'd ask you to not park far, but park joyfully because we know now you're being assigned spot. You may not like your spot, but you can get over that, can't you? And um, and then he also ask you to keep giving, um, keep giving to the mission expansion project. And then here's the last one, and that is to get involved. Um, The the shifting of our needs has moved from parking and sanctuary, and now it's really in children's ministry. And we have an amazing uh, need of uh, workers for particularly our nursery area. Uh, We birth over 100 children a year just from people in this congregation, not to mention people who come. Um, So we're adding by both new people and by multiplication physically. And uh, so we could use your help. If you have empty arms and would love to be a part, that's a big uh, help to us, and so there's a sign-up table out there today. You might think it's a small thing, but it really is a, a big thing that we have enough workers uh, for our nursery, so people can be here and uh, hear the word, worship, and uh, know that the kids are well cared for. So, uh, I encourage you to maybe think about that as uh, you um, leave this morning. That table's out there in the foyer. Well, let's pray and get to work on our passage this morning. Father, we pray for help today. I I ask you to help me. This is a tough passage. It's um, one that is loaded with some great and important truths, but it is also one that is challenging, hard to understand, and one that we really need to grab a hold of. And I pray that you give us grace to respond to what you tell us in your word. I pray you give me grace to communicate it in a way that is both faithful to the text and applicable to the world in which we live. Um, We need mercy today from your word. We're here today because we want to meet with you. We've been able to do that in worship, and now I pray we would do so in word. So apply your word. Holy Spirit, be our teacher. Empower my heart, my mouth, and my mind to say exactly what you want to be said about this passage. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're back into um, our series in the book of Matthew after looking at the problem of the fear of man or approval junkie. And I hope that you were able to make some progress in that area. That issue of the fear of man really is where our culture is. It hits a nerve, and I trust that you will continue to grow in that arena. It's really important because our culture is fascinated with personal approval. One of our staff members sent me a website that uh, verifies this. I, just, I have to show you this. AwesomeReminders.com. Here's what this is. For $10 a month subscription, someone will call you every day and tell you, yep, you're awesome. All right? <laughs> Listen, here's uh Here's Holly.
0: Great. Um, Holly, my name is Paul Reynolds, and I'm calling to tell you that you're awesome. (laughs) Thanks. Great. Holly, uh, you're awesome too, man. Thank you so much. I hope you have an awesome day, and I hope that you achieve
1: everything that you want. Have a lovely day. Thanks
0: so much. You too. Bye.
1: Bye Bye-bye. So 10 bucks a month for your friend or for yourself or your wife or your husband, you can have someone call you every day and tell you, you are awesome. Listen, th- that's how desperate our culture is. That- that's how desperate we are to try and uh, figure out this approval thing. And I just want to encourage you that the whole issue of um, dealing with the fear of man doesn't end this Sunday. Rather, I want you to see that there's a connection between everything that we do on Sunday, building a biblical framework of your thinking, helping your mind and heart know how to handle the issues that we face every single day. So every Sunday is a process of helping you to try and think biblically about all of life, including issues like the fear of man. So I hope that you see today even the connection between what we learn about today and even last week. There's not a hard stop between these. Rather, they just kind of flow into one another. Today we're uh, wrapping up this um, series on um, the subject of um, Christ being an enigma, and uh, this is the last of uh, 13 messages on this subject. Next week we're going to jump into a new series that gets more practical in regards to issues like humility, forgiveness, church discipline, divorce, um, personal greatness. That'll take us um, about seven weeks to walk through chapters 18 through 20. And I just want to kind of reset where we've been in this series called Enigma and these chapters of um, Matthew 13 through 17. Just to give you kind of a big picture re- review, we looked at the point of parables in chapter 13, and then we saw a number of parables, like the parable of the sower, weeds, leaven, hidden treasure, pearl of great price. We saw how Jesus was rejected. We saw the martyrdom of John the Baptist. We saw miracles that Jesus... Um, begins to do miracles of feeding large groups of people miracles of walking on water and miracles of healing of the syrophoenician woman remember she was the one who begged jesus to heal her and when he refused she said even the dogs get the crumbs from the table we also saw this growing animosity with the pharisees remember they traveled like 150 miles to ask jesus a really important question which was Uh, How come your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat? And it is this growing tension that exists between Jesus and the religious rulers. And along with that was this kind of um, summit text where Peter says to Jesus, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus eventually responds about what it means to follow him, which was a man must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This whole passage, though, reaches its apex in Matthew 17, where we saw the event of the transfiguration. And if you'll remember, this transfiguration was a moment, not when Jesus was changed, but rather when the glory of who he is was unveiled before the disciples. They were able to see him for all the glory that is implicit within him, but is veiled and and hidden by his humanity. And for a few moments, the veil was lifted and the glory of Jesus was evident During that moment, Moses and Elijah showed up and God himself spoke, God the Father spoke one of only two times that he says these very words and speaks in this way, first being his baptism, second being this transfiguration where God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. And this this transfiguration moment is a phenomenally beautiful moment, so beautiful that Peter, James and John, who are there with Jesus, want to stay there. Peter suggests setting up tents and remaining there. And it's a beautiful, unbelievably glorious moment in the life of these three disciples. But, like every mountaintop experience that one has, it has to end. And the reality is that we see here a a version, if you will, of real-world Christianity. This is what Christianity ends up being. It ends up being a series of mountaintop and valley experiences. You know this. Because you experience something phenomenal, hopefully on the Lord's Day, everything seems so right and so clear and so plain within the four walls of this, of this building, and then you go back to work on Monday and you hit the valley of the real world. How do you live this out? The difficult questions, and in some respects, even disappointing circumstances. I mean, it could be as simple as you're singing great things about God. You can move mountains, but you can't get your four-year-old to sit down in the back seat of the car, right? I mean, God can do great things. How come he can't help her keep that seatbelt buckled? That's the real world of where we live. And it's these these peaks and valleys of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Today we're going to see kind of the the valley experience as Jesus and his disciples come down from the Mount of Transfiguration and they're confronted with the failure of disciples to cast out a demon, um, to cast out a demon from a demon-possessed boy They hear about the dark future of Jesus in that he will be betrayed and crucified, killed, and then raised from the dead. And then he's questioned about the payment of taxes. I mean, it just, it almost seems like, what? How does this all fit together? It's like Jesus is on this beautiful moment, and now we've experienced the failure of the disciples, the reality of his death, and what seems to be like a really annoying question about whether or not he's going to pay the temple tax. And yet th- this is this is the real world. Great moments of beautiful ecstasy as you're thinking about a glory of who God is and then the reality of dealing with your children over lunch. The reality of, a, of a budgets that, that don't meet well or bills that have to be paid. This is the real world of disappointments and glories. And how do you make them work? So we're going to talk about that today, this real tension of being a follower of Jesus. We're going to look at two things today. The first is the God-dependent faith that Jesus is advocating in verses 14 to 21. And then we're going to see this this man-deferring discernment that Jesus has in the latter part of the passage. The bulk of the time we'll spend just on this first point. So first, God-dependent faith. Jesus comes down from the mountain, and he's greeted by a father who is deeply distressed. Verse 14 tells us that the father comes reverently, he kneels before Jesus, he calls him Lord, and appeals to him about the needs of his son. Verse 15 captures what what he says. It says, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into water. Now there's some debate about what the word epileptic actually means here. ESV translates it that way, but the word literally means moon struck. And it came from the idea that these seizures or this abnormality or this kind of crazy behavior was somehow connected to the moon. That's why if you remember from your King James Bible or even the English word, you hear the word lunatic, lunar, lunatic. The idea of the moon created this strange behavior. Well, the NIV translates it, translates it as seizures. And the reason why it's important to make the distinction is because this boy was clearly, as you'll see in a moment, demon-possessed. And therefore, that demon possession created these seizures. But the use of epileptic, that word connected with this, might make you think that the epilepsy was somehow connected directly with the demon possession. And that would be unfair if you have epilepsy or know anyone who suffers from these kind of seizures. And yet, Mark tells us in Mark chapter 9 that the demon possession was actually at the core of these seizures. So the the, the seizures are the physical manifestation of this um, possession that this boy has Mark chapter 9 Listen to what it says Teacher I brought my son to you For he has a spirit that makes him mute And whenever it seizes him It throws him down He foams and grinds his teeth And becomes rigid So that's a, that's a violent seizure So whatever word you choose Epileptic or seizures Don't use lunatic Whatever word you want to use um, the, the condition clearly is dangerous And it's more than a disability This is connected somehow to demon possession. But that's not even the point of the passage. The the point, although this condition is serious, the, the point is really the fact that the disciples have not been able to heal this boy. The disciples have not been able to cast this demon out. Mark 9, a parallel passage to this one, tells us that when Jesus came upon this scene, the disciples were arguing with the scribes presumably they were arguing with the scribes about why they couldn't cast the demon out maybe they were kind of in the face of the disciples saying how come we can't do it and the disciples were we don't know and and jesus comes on this scene and it would have been an embarrassing moment for the disciples because jesus had already given them authority to heal diseases In, in matthew chapter 10 he told them to go to heal diseases cast out demons and exercise authority over unclean spirits Jesus had given them that authority. In fact, they were quite successful at it. Luke 10 tells us that the disciples came back after doing this and were just filled with joy, telling Jesus, even the demons are responsive to, our, to your name. To which Jesus says, don't rejoice that you are able to cast out demons, but rather rejoice that your names are written in the book of heaven. So there, there is this sense where the, the disciples are excited because of this newfound power and no doubt... You can imagine the thrilling moments of ministry success as they're able to confront darkness face-to-face, say a word, and someone would be healed. So the situation is disappointing for everyone. It's disappointing for the Father, disappointing for the disciples, and it's also disappointing for Jesus. We pick up on this in verse 17. His response is fairly instructive about what's going on inside of his heart as he sees this situation. Jesus says this, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him, bring the child to me. Jesus sounds a bit discouraged, sounds weary, sounds burdened. Frederick Bruner, in his commentary on this passage, says, At the top of the mountain, Jesus shone and glowed. At the bottom of the mountain, he moaned and groaned. And he did, and probably for good reason. Jesus is feeling here the press, if you will, of the humanity, the press of a fallen world, the press of the disappointment that he feels in his disciples' shallow understanding of both who he is and even who they are. This this little section here in um, verse 17, a couple things to note. First, is that Jesus is expressing the honest tension that he feels between his mission and the spiritual shallowness of his followers. He's, he's pressed by the broken world that he lives in and really even the broken and sometimes very skewed understanding that his disciples have about how they're going to function in ministry. And that's why he says, how long must I bear with you? Jesus coming to earth was not a, um, a wonderful experience for him, but one that was constantly filled with sorrow and difficulty, which is why he's described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He sees the brokenness, the out-of-stepness of the world. Secondly, he identifies this generation as twisted. He says, oh, this faithless and twisted generation. Other translations render it perverse. It, it means that one's um, mental um framework is out of balance it's it's not as it should be that the plumb line of god's will doesn't fit with the understanding of people in culture in other words jesus looks at this generation and says things are just broken this isn't the way things are supposed to be and even looks at the disciples and realizes how much more they could be for god's glory but how far they have yet to go but the most important word is the word faithless this is the very first thing that he says, and it's most important. He, he says, oh, faithless and twisted generation. Faithlessness means that there's a, uh, an underdeveloped trust, that they were lacking the faith through which God loved to work. This is by far the most important point, and it identifies for us that something malfunctioned with the disciples, such that Jesus would say, oh, this faithless and twisted generation what's remarkable is the uncured boy is still there. And verse 18 tells us that Jesus quickly and easily healed the boy. It says Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. I mean, it's remarkable. The disciples tried and tried and tried, and they couldn't heal him. And Jesus just spoke word, and instantly. So the contrast is also something to note between the disciples' failure and Jesus' utter success. Well, of course, now the disciples are curious. They, they couldn't do it. And Jesus could instantly, and so they wanted to know, what did we miss? What happened here? How did this thing go so far south? So they ask him in verse 19, and Jesus gives them a straight answer in verse 20. Here's what he says, because of your little faith. That's his answer. So why did things malfunction? Answer, because of your little faith. Little in the sense of that your, your faith has malfunctioned. And then he says this, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now come on, if you look at that passage, that, that's got to create a, a bazillion questions in your mind. right? And then that, that passage creates a real challenging problem. For instance, if you take this passage ultimately literally, well, in, in one case that would be good news for me, because uh, I have five and a half tons of gravel on my driveway right now that I'm using for a project in my backyard. And if I took this verse literally, that would be awesome because I could go up to this five and a half tons of gravel and say, move to the backyard, and all the stones start floating and go in their place. That'd be beautiful if that's how you take it. But the reality is there's also another challenge, and it's far more personal. For instance, a, um, a young girl who was in the youth ministry that I interned in, she was a quadriplegic. And somebody got in her head and told her, if you just had enough faith, you could get up from that chair and walk. And for years, she wrestled with, what's wrong with me and my faith? that I don't have enough faith to believe that I could walk, so I could just stand up and God would instantly heal me if I just had enough faith. So you realize that this passage has some ditches on either side, and it's a challenging text that we've got to kind of wrestle with. So let me try and help you understand what's going on here. First, you need to see that Jesus is speaking in metaphor and hyperbole. The metaphor is the grain of a mustard seed. The hyperbole is, say to this mountain, this, this mountain move. He indicates that a small amount of faith, the size of a grain of mustard seed, so a, a, a small amount of faith could be powerful enough to move a mountain. So that, that metaphor relates to the um, grain of a mustard seed. The hyperbole relates to the fact that Jesus says you can move a mountain. And then he says, nothing will be impossible for you. So since there's a metaphor and a hyperbole, then we have to take this other phrase, nothing will be impossible for you, also as a statement of hyperbole. Jesus isn't saying that there's absolutely nothing that's going to be impossible for you. He's rather trying to make the important point, the fact that the disciples' faith is so weak that if they had a little bit of faith, that therefore God would be able to do great and amazing things through them. The reason this is important is because this verse is not a blank faith check for the disciples to get anything they want. God, I believe you and pray for a million dollars. And yet if you watched Christian television, so-called Christian television, you'd hear things like name it, claim it, sorts of claims, or just believe this in order for that to happen, and this kind of verse just put all underneath this kind of faith dynamic, which creates a lot of problems, is exegetically off, and also leads people to hopelessness and question if God is even really alive and well. So we've got to be careful. So, So what exactly is he saying? If that's not what he's saying, what exactly is he saying? Well, I think part of the key to understanding this passage is found in a footnote in your Bible and Mark chapter 9. If you look carefully, you'll notice that there's no verse 21 in your Bible. If you have an ESV, it's not there. Other translations, also, most of them have the same thing. If you look down the bottom of your Bible, this footnote indicates this. This is what mine says. It says, some manuscripts, insert verse 21. Now, what's going on here? For those of you not familiar with biblical criticism or even how your Bible came to you, this Bible that you hold is the inspired Word of God. It is the collection of various manuscripts throughout church history that give us the inerrant Word of God. We don't have the actual manuscripts, but we have copies of them, and over time, for various reasons, some of those copies have various things that are called a textual variant, which means um, somebody copied it wrong, or they added maybe a quotation in there um, that wasn't a part of the. Um, scribal tradition In, in many cases when this happened it often happens because the scribe wanted to explain what something meant and rather than putting it as a footnote he just included it in the translation or maybe he thought of another passage that he had heard before and as he copied it he just simply added it so here's what verse 21 with the other manuscript says but this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting So two things to note here. First, probably that this scribe in the other manuscripts um, added this to try and explain what's going on. And for good reason, although it wasn't what Matthew said, because of what Mark chapter 9 records. Now here's where the key. The key is found in verse 23 and 28 of Mark 9. Verse 23, Mark 9. And Jesus said to him, he's speaking to the father, again, this is Mark's account of the situation, regarding him healing his son. He says, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Get that word, believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I love this, I believe. Help my unbelief. This is such a hopeful verse. The reason it's hopeful, friends, is because when Jesus talks about the grain of mustard, or a faith that's the size of a grain of mustard, what he's talking about here is the kind of belief that's infantile, but yet it is there. So he's talking about not this person who has incredible, never doubting, full of confidence faith. No, he's talking about the person who in honesty of their soul says, God, I believe, but help my unbelief. So belief is part of it. Now go on to verse 28 of Mark. Chapter 9, it says, And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So belief and prayer. When you read these passages together, you begin to see these two things emerge. And now you know why that scribe would have maybe added this in to try and help people explain or understand what Jesus is saying here about nothing will be impossible for you. What he's saying is that the faith that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 17 is connected to belief and prayer. In other words, the problem with the disciples' inability to heal this boy has something to do with their lack of believing prayer. Jesus said, this kind doesn't come out except by prayer. It seems that the malfunction of ministry came about because of a malfunction of belief in A malfunction of prayer combined in the combination of this malfunction of faith. And that is why Jesus moans and groans. That's why he calls this generation faithless and perverse. Why he calls them twisted. Because apparently they were not trusting in God like before. And Jesus uses this example to drive home the importance of God-dependent faith, God-dependent belief, and God-dependent prayer. Now, we don't know all of what happened in the context of this story, but I can imagine what took place. And, and that would be what happens all the time in the context of ministry. You, you do something, and God seems to bless it. You do something, and it seems as though the Holy Spirit blows on it. And then before you know it, you got a program, you got a book, you got a system, and you're starting to move your way along, and all of a sudden you realize, you know what, I don't need God for this anymore. Or the reality is you live like that practically. You go into your Sunday school class, and I got this, God, I've taught this lesson over and over, I got this sermon, I got this ministry, I got this music, I got it, I got it. You don't need to worry about this, I got it. And what God over time does is diminishes the return of His people in order to remind them when you think you've got it, you don't got it. And that dependency is the essence of discipleship. That the more you grow in Christ, the more dependent you are on God, not less. The more you know about the Scriptures, the more you know you need Him. So be warned, church, if in your understanding of the Scriptures, you find yourself to be more self-confident, self-assured, and filled with the knowledge of really who you are and what you know. The more you know about Christ, the more you should know how much you need Him, not less. Well, let me state it positively. Nothing is impossible for God. Nothing. Do you believe that? Whoa. Do you believe that? If you believe this, then pray like it. See, the reality is what happens is we know this intellectually, but we don't live like this. We don't pray like this. We don't believe like this. We don't believe practically that God can do the impossible. And so the effect is you stop praying for things that seem like there's... like like just not going to work. Or there are things in your world that you don't pray at all about because you think, well... I don't really need God's help for this. I've I've got it covered. And the things we do pray about, if we're honest, are the things that in our moments of desperation, we're like, you know, I've tried everything, might as well try prayer now. And what we see here in the disciples is the way in which God diminishes their ministry in order to show them that their need of God dependency should pervade their lives. Let me make this very specific. If you don't believe, you won't pray. And if you don't pray, you don't believe. If you don't believe, you'll never pray. If you don't believe in God, you won't talk to Him, you won't ask Him. I mean, if you don't believe in His power, you won't say, God, would you help me with this? And for that matter, if... If you don't pray, then you really don't believe. Prayer is like breathing for the believer. God-dependency is the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so the problem here for the disciples is a fundamental belief problem, a dependency problem, and Jesus calls it faithlessness. The call here in this passage is to be reminded that God wants us to be dependent and that there is a curse in self-sufficiency. You know, we're getting ready to launch, we're in the middle of launching all sorts of new programs. We have children's ministry, small groups, large groups, we've got prayer meetings that happen, we've got all sorts of things, and and support classes, and counseling um, opportunities, all of these things. And you know what? All those programs are wonderful and great, but you know what? And I know you know this in here, but I want you to feel it in here. Unless God, by His Spirit, blows on those programs, they will just be the form and not the reality. We live in the most Resource-rich culture, when it comes to the things of the Bible, we have more books, we have more CDs, more mp3 files, more podcasts, more information, more seminars, we have more information than any generation in the history of Christianity, and yet there's not a lot of power in the church of God. Why is that? It may be because our real need is not more information or more stuff or more answers or another three points, but it really is for us to get on our face and say, God, we need you. We need you. And in the midst of a culture that's seemingly lost its way, I just wonder how long God will stay his hand of a culture that looks at children and says they're not valuable and so we abort them, or looks at marriage and redefines it and same-sex marriage, and all the things that are going on, and all the other things that are taking place. And there's going to be a million solutions offered in the midst of our culture. And at the end of the day, the thing that we need more than anything else is to fall on our face, repent, and say, God, forgive us for our self-sufficiency, our pride. We need you. This last week, I spent three days with some friends at Life Action Ministries, had some time with Erwin Lutzer, the pastor of Moody Church. wrote a great book recently called, When a Nation Forgets God... And I was just struck and reminded again that at the end of the day, at the end of the day, what the Church of Jesus Christ needs, for that matter, what the world needs, is is a God sent, Spirit empowered, Jesus exalting awakening where we say, God, we are desperate and we need you. And by the way, that's the goal. So if God has to use the tanking of an economy, he has has to use the persecution of believers. Remember, our goal is not a safe, happy life. Our goal is the exaltation of Christ, even if that costs us our lives. That's the goal. So the disciples, they were given a charge. Go and cast these demons out. And they couldn't do it. They were called to act in faith. And Jesus says a small amount of true belief in the great power of God would be unleashed. Now, let me just give you a few things here to think about. When we talk about living by faith, some lessons that relate to this, I just want to give you, these are five quick things. First, it's this. When we talk about this, this nothing is impossible, you have to know God's commands from his word or your faith will be baseless. Please, enough of this, I have faith because God's told me. You have faith because God's told you here. So unless your faith is in this word, unless you know this word, your faith will be baseless and at times, frankly, silly. So please don't be a silly Christian who goes around telling people what God told you. If it doesn't fit with the inspired text, that could have been just your emotions or the burrito you had at lunch. (laughs) So be careful. Number two, understand that faith is a gift so you can believe and it's evidence that what you believe is real, meaning that the faith to believe doesn't come from you You can't work this up. This is something that God, by His Spirit, provides and gives. And it gives you confidence, but also hope in Him, not in yourself. Third, prayer and belief are inseparable, like lungs to the body and air. Lungs could be to belief, like breathing would be to prayer. They're meant to go together, and therefore the call in this passage is to believe and pray. Here's another one. Fourth, pray the Bible. If you don't know what to pray, if you're like, how do I know if I could pray God's will? Answer, pray this book. This is His will. Pray this. Pray it over and over and over. Let the Bible inform your praying, and you will pray the will of God. And by the way, you'll probably pray remarkably different than how you pray now. And finally, don't assume that a little faith is bad faith. I love the fact that this father says... I believe, but help my unbelief. Jesus said the faith the size of a mustard seed is powerful. So real world Christianity is a life of faith where we take God at his word, we believe his word. It's it's God dependency based upon the work of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's the kind of life where you say, God, I want to be able to trust in you. I believe that nothing is impossible for you, and therefore I'm going to ask you to do things, and I'm going to pray in faith in you for you to do something. The question is this. Is there anything in your life today that you just simply stop praying about because you're just like, you know what, it's just pointless? Or is there things in your life that are pointless now? because you've in fact stopped praying. You know, God can shut things down because he wants you to pray, because prayer for him is more important than you being successful in the area that you think you want to be successful in. So that's God-dependent faith. Here's the second thing, and that is a man-deferring discernment. This next passage, to be honest, is is kind of strange. Verse 24 tells us that when the party of Jesus and his disciples came to Capernaum, a tax collector approached Peter, about the half shekel, or the two drachma, tax. Now, this tax was the temple tax, and it was an obligatory contribution that each Jewish male paid during the time of the Passover. It comes from Exodus 31, or Exodus 30, rather, where the Israelites, when they came out of Egypt, God required of them that they pay a ransom for their lives, and that ransom was used to fund the construction of the the, the tabernacle, or rather, supporting of the tabernacle. When you traveled to Jerusalem as a Jew during Passover, you would pay it personally in Jerusalem. And that's why there were money changers in the temple. Because this temple tax was paid, people had to convert their currency. However, people who were further away from Jerusalem paid the tax by proxy. pay it to somebody else. And then that person would then deliver it. And that's what's going on here. And apparently, the tax hadn't been paid yet. And that's why this man is asking Peter this question. He knows that the tax hasn't been paid. So he's not really asking a question. He's making a statement. You understand how that works, right? Because most questions are veiled statement anyways. For example, if you're having a conversation with someone today, and they say to you, you're talking you know, pretty close, and they say to you, hey... Have you brushed your teeth this morning? That's probably not a question. It's more of a statement, okay? So that's the kind of question that is going on here in this passage. He's asking, but he's really stating something. And Peter responds affirmatively that Jesus does pay the temple tax, although he doesn't actually know that or not, because when he shows up and meets Jesus in the house, Jesus says in verse 25, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And Jesus says, from others. Or Peter said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. What's going on here? Well, Jesus is pointing to the fact that the sons of the kings were treated differently than the subjects. The sons weren't taxed like the subjects were. And therefore, the implication should be rather obvious. Jesus, as the Son of God, is not beholden to pay a tax of the temple. He's far greater than the temple. In fact, he said that to the Pharisees, that he was far greater than the temple. He destroyed it and in three days hour build it. But he was talking about himself. And so therefore, since he's the Son of God, the tax doesn't apply to him. So here's the Son of God in the midst of this culture, and yet he says something interesting. He says in verse 27, However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself." So Jesus has, has full claim and rights to not pay this because of who he is. It would be like my kids setting up a lemonade stand in our neighborhood, and they used my table and my chairs, my tablecloth, my water, my lemonade powder, my tent, my markers, and my cardboard to sell lemonade for 25 cents a glass. And it would be like me going up to them and saying, hey guys, great stand, can I have a drink? And having them say, yeah, that'll be 25 cents, please. I'd be like, whatever, I own everything you're using. <laughs> Give it to me, right? And so I might, out of the graciousness of my heart, pay them 25 cents, but I don't owe them a thing, right? This didn't happen, I'm not bitter, just so you know. I just <laughs> got a little involved in the illustration. But... So apparently, Jesus' refusal to pay this tax, although technically true, would have created a problem. Now, the word problem here, remember this, is the word scandalizo. A couple of words I want you to remember, because we're going back to them. Ransom, scandal. So rather than have it be a scandal, he decides that even though he shouldn't have to, he goes ahead and pays the debt anyways. He sends Peter to catch the coin-filled fish and then turn that in. Now, if you put this together, it's a remarkable moment that shows us the tension of living in the real world, and it shows us the beauty and the tension of being a follower of Jesus, because this tax issue is so trivial. And yet Jesus chooses to exercise great discernment. He doesn't choose and claim his rights. He decides to pay it. He doesn't want to be offensive, so he pays it. But when he deals with the Pharisees about washing your hands before you eat, he's right in their grill. Who are you? What do you... And he... Woe to you, scribes? you blind guy. you strain out a net and swallow a camel? He's right in their face. But with this man? No, he's discerning. Peter, you know what? We don't want to be offensive. Go fish and get a coin. Here's the real world. Here's the real balance. I'll give you a couple examples. When do you claim your freedom in Christ and when do you limit your freedom in love for another person? When do you argue a point or when do you simply choose to let it go? When do you confront something versus when do you cover it in love? When is something an act of faith versus a matter of presumption? When do you leave something in God's hands versus when do you take steps on your own? This is where we live, is it not? So what's the answer? Here's the answer. It's not a book, it's not a program, it's not a sermon. You know what the answer is? The answer is the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that Jesus left as a comforter, as a help. Listen to John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, who the world cannot receive, and then he goes on in John 14, 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am with you, while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom my Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So here's the beautiful news. When you're stuck in that difficult tension of what do you do and, and what, what do I, how do I think about this? You have been given the empowering presence of Christ through the Spirit. So when you're confused or wondering what you should do or wondering what, what to, room, What path to go on? Remember that you have the personal presence of Christ and the Spirit of the risen Christ is there to help you to pray right, to think right, to live right. Which is why Paul said, walk in the Spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Listen friends, one of the things that we probably all need to work harder on is less three steps to getting more righteous and more, let's just learn to walk by the Spirit. For you to be able to cry out and say, God, would you help me right now? Holy Spirit, would you help me know what to do? The personal presence of Christ has been given as a gift to help us know how to navigate these waters. Now finally, there's just one more thing. As I was studying the scripture, I couldn't help but see an amazing parallel. You notice, if you're paying attention, that I skipped verses 22 and 23 where Jesus says that he's about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he'll be raised on the third day. It's just remarkable to me that when Jesus talks about this temple tax, just remember what we learned. It was a ransom tax that Jesus didn't have to pay because he didn't, and he didn't want to become a scandal. And now, in just a few short chapters in the book of Matthew, we will see this Son of God, Who will diminish all of his claims, his rights, who will be mocked and beaten, who will be, have people spit in his face, pull out his beard, hit him with a reed and mock him and hail him as the King of Jews. It is this Jesus who goes to Golgotha and relinquishes his rights and becomes a scandal hanging on the cross, cursed by God, hanging on the tree, who does all of this in order to pay the ransom for those who would claim Him as their Lord and Savior. And here is this Jesus who pays the tax of the ransom so that He isn't offensive, and in a few chapters will become the very ransom payment that will make people possibly to be forgiven of their sins and will become the ransom of their lives. It's amazing. And it is no wonder that the writer of Hebrews tells us that when we grow weary and life becomes difficult and we have to face difficult decisions and we don't know what to do and we wonder, how do I do this? That the answer is this, look to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I don't want to make your life overly simplistic or problems that are really complicated, overly um, simplistic, but listen, at the end of the day, what you need more than anything else is a fresh view of who Jesus is and a fresh understanding of what it means to be empowered by the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit in your life. So that when you cry out to Christ in your moment of uncertainty, not knowing what to do, or in your desire to see God do something, and you know that God can do it, but you really don't know how, that you say to this risen Christ, Lord, I believe in you, but help my unbelief. In a moment, we're going to close in prayer. And there's some of you here today that there's a particular issue, a thing, a ministry issue, something going on in your world. And that prayer needs to come from your mouth today. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And there's going to be some folks up here who would love to pray for you and with you if today God by His Spirit is saying, look, it's time to believe that I can do all things. Therefore, come and pray even in your weak faith. Put off self-sufficiency and put on God-dependent faith. Lord Jesus, risen Christ, our King, Master, and Lord, we honor you and pray that you would help help us not just to believe, but Lord, help us in our unbelief. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here today who may need just a fresh touch from you knowing that, Lord, you can do the impossible and therefore we want to call on you to do that. Father, I pray today that you would open their heart to believe even in their position of unbelief. And Lord, for those who may hear this message, maybe in worship too, maybe in the sanctuary, maybe on a podcast, that Lord, maybe by understanding this Christ who is the ransom and yielded his own rights so that we could be forgiven. That. Lord, you might open their eyes for them to see this Christ and run to him who paid the ransom for their soul. So, Lord Jesus, thank you that we can look to you as the author and perfecter, the founder of our faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our counselors, our prayer team was here and in worship too. If you need someone to pray with you, they're there, okay? God bless you. I love you, College Park.